Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am over the moon today, but after much pleading, we'll hear from a friend I admire greatly for how he's created extraordinary success in his professional and family life. He is the unassuming founder of one of the tri-state area's leading construction management firms with current projects valued at over $1 billion. He's highly sought after as a construction partner to top designers, referred to as a builder with the vision of an architect. Just a few of his projects include the addition to the Morgan Library and Museum, Pratt Institute School of Architecture, Harvard Club of New York City, Columbia Medical Center, Princeton University, Trinity Church, and down the street from me, the very cool shed at Hudson Yards. In 2006, New York Governor Pataki and Mayor Bloomberg appointed him to lead the effort to ensure a buildable World Trade Center memorial. I am thrilled to introduce a man whose accomplishments, contributions, and dedication to preserving New York City's treasures have been recognized with numerous honors, and most importantly, one who is an adoring husband, father, grandfather, and friend. Meet Chairman and CEO of Siami Construction, Frank Siami. Frank, welcome to Say It Skillfully. <laughs> Wow, who's that guy? Yeah, who is that guy? Does he have a cape? I think it's a cape. Thank you for this uh, that great introduction. And first of all, Happy New Year to you and all of your listeners. Let's hope that it will be a uh, tremendous year for everyone. Uh, I'm humbled to be part of Say It Skillfully, especially after you are having guests like Curtis Martin. As a real avid, longtime Jet fan, Curtis, the Hall of Famer, was one of my heroes. The Football Hall, Hall of Famer was one of my heroes. So it's going to be, I hope, good. And uh, again, I thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's uh, the honor and the, the pleasure, Frank, is absolutely all mine. I am so happy, finally, to host you on the show. And you, your amazing wife, Barbara, and extended clan so inspire me, your work ethic, commitment to family, while having fun and keeping things in perspective, all things I admire in you all. And I just have to say, I know you're not one to talk much about yourself. And there's so much for listeners to learn from your life journey. So extra special saying thank you for for joining us. You know, so just help us get to know you a bit. Perhaps share how your life was as a kid. You know, take us through what's most shaped who you are. Okay. Well, I will say that you skillfully got me to do this, Molly. And uh, I hope for the sake of your listeners that it won't be completely underwhelming. But as you suggested, let me start uh, with growing up. And, um, you know, I grew up in in East New York, Brooklyn, in a small house. Uh, My grandparents lived on the ground floor with my single aunt, and we lived on the second floor with my mom, my dad, my two sisters. I'm sure it was tight, but we didn't know it. Only one bathroom at the time, but it was a multi-generational home, not a house. And living with my grandparents was mostly fun. 
living with my single Aunt Angela, who I referred to as my second mother, was great. She was always there to lend support and a, and a loving hand. I was the second child, born nicely between two incredible and loving sisters. So I had no brother to compete with, an only boy. Grandparents, great-grandparents, a second mother, two terrific sisters, and seven cousins living close by, cousins who remain very close to this very day, and who were always supportive and continue to be supportive, I guess I could say that I hit the genetic lottery with this family. And as you mentioned, family to me is very important. But I have to admit, growing up with my sisters and seven cousins were looking a lot smarter than I looked and a lot better than I looked. So I guess I found escape in building things. I really loved to build things. I guess we were the poorest family of all the cousins, but we never knew it. We never had any idea that we were poor. I don't know how my mother did it, but she managed to make us the best dressed family of the group. Yet, I will tell you, Molly, that had my mother been born 50 years later, she would no doubt in my mind be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. She had an incredible business acumen. I later learned that there were times when she actually feared being able to put butter on the table. And it was then that she went out to work. Um, my dad was a union painter. He made a decent living, but union painters were laid off at times. If work was slow, employers thought nothing of laying them off and he would have to survive on unemployment insurance. So mom went out and got a job, but what kind of a job was she gonna get? She found a job where it started at 10, ended at six. So what would she do? She was a saleswoman at the Francis shop in City Line, Brooklyn. But she was able to manage things. What she did, I don't know what time she got up, but she would pre-prepare dinner, then get us dressed, send us off to school, go to work, come back home at six o'clock, put the food, the pre-cooked food in the oven, heat it up, and although she worked three days a week, we would have dinner seven days a week as a family. And I guess that's why she had a couple of uh, lines that I never forgot. One was where there's a will, there's a way. And the other was hard work never killed anyone. And she lived by that. She did it. She sacrificed for her family and set an incredible example for myself, my sisters, and, and even all of our cousins. Uh, as I said, my dad was a union painter, and he even worked weekends with side jobs so that he could get us to go to college. Even though my sister and I attended free colleges, my sister went to Brooklyn College, I ended up going to City College. Most Italian families at, time, at that time had their kids working right after high school so that they could contribute to the support of the family. But my mom and dad would have nothing of that. They wanted us to get an education. They wanted us to be the best that we could be. My dad had the patience of a saint. In his tiny basement, I remember him cutting out with a little jigsaw 
a complete Santa Claus and reindeer set. I guess I'm remembering that because the holiday season just passed. But there was some kind of a kit that he bought. He'd use tracing paper and pencils and then carefully paint the sled, Santa, and five reindeer. And he would jury-rig a spotlight and put that up on the porch for everyone to see. He was really proud of that little setup. It wasn't so little. It was actually life-size. And my sisters and I were really proud of his craftsmanship. He taught me how to use tools, but he never wanted me to hold a paintbrush. He was afraid that I was going to become a union painter like himself. He said, no, you are going to school. You are becoming an engineer. And he just wanted me to, as I said, do a little better than he did. Molly, should I keep going on or do you want to interject anything? No, I love this. This is making me smile. And I can just tell you, in addition to listeners, I think your family is going to really appreciate this, especially the little ones who may not even be old enough yet to tune in. So this is, you know, I just have to segue. You're always impeccably dressed, as is your wife. And so I think that 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 how your mother propped you up, you know, in those early days has definitely stayed with you. It's fabulous. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, dad uh, always worked. And as I said, he had side jobs in the neighborhood on weekends. And when I was around 11 and he was in his 50s, I wanted to help him. And he refused. He said, no, you go out and play with your friends. Could you imagine that? Someone at 50 years old doing hard labor, setting up a project. But I found a way to compromise. I guess it was the good old fashioned Catholic school guilt, and we made a deal. I would help him set up the jobs in the morning, which would be covering all the furniture, moving the furniture to the middle of the room before he started painting it, go out and play with my friends, and then come back about four or five in the afternoon and uncover the furniture with him, put things back in place. So not, at all, not only did this you know, teach me to respect the working man, to respect the boots on the ground, it also taught me how to fold drop cloths in a pretty good way. But I really, you know, believed uh, that that took an enormous amount of sacrifice for him to put himself first and, I mean, put me first before himself and want to do it on his own. Uh, simply put, my, my dad couldn't be a better husband and a better father to all of us. And, you know, given my dad, my mom, my sisters, uh, my cousins, and, and, and my aunts, there were three aunts that were really also forces in my life. I guess I had what I'd call an incredible security blanket growing up. But in my formative years, my mom was sick. Um, I thought seriously, uh, she had ulcers, and then later on in life, rheumatoid arthritis. Never complained, never stopped working, never stopped doing things for the family. But as I said, in my formidable years, I was a worrier. And that didn't help me at school. I think if at the time uh, they had it, I would have been diagnosed with some sort of a learning disability. Uh, <laughs> but not knowing it, I continued. But But worrying was a big distraction at school. And my aunts would try to keep things from me, but I would 
listen without them seeing me listen or watch without them seeing me watch. And it's funny, but I learned to read the tea leaves. When I learned that mom was feeling pretty good, it was great. When I first learned she wasn't feeling so good, it was stressful. But learning to read people, I think, is a quality that I unwittingly acquired by trying to understand what was going on with my mom's illness. Um, so it, it really was a time uh, in school. I wasn't the brightest in the class for sure. I think some of it had to do with probably a learning disability and, and, and being distracted. So when it got time to go into high school, uh, I wanted to be in a technical school, technical course, because I love building. And my dad wanted me to be an engineer. At the time, Brooklyn Tech was the school that everybody wanted to go to. But my grades would not support that. I did go to Thomas Edison Vocational and Technical High School. And the technical course was for the top 10% of the students. So it was a good course. I did learn a lot. And I did have some machine shop, uh, some woodworking shop, which really became a big asset uh, in my construction career because I know how to build things. Uh, pieces of hardware that one might think can't be done, can't be built. I did it. I did it in a machine shop. Uh, it was a tough school. I mean, while I was making screwdrivers and wrenches, I have to be honest, some of the kids in the vocational course were making zip guns. <laughs> it was a pretty tough school, but I survived. Uh, when it got to go to college, I ended, and I, and I tell you that I think not being able to go to Brooklyn Tech was a good thing. Because if you're not prepared for something, it would be a mistake to go there. Leaving Thomas Edison High School, I was accepted at Farmingdale State University Agricultural and Technical College. And they had a pre-engineering course that I wanted to take. But my advisement counselors advised against it. And I was disappointed, but I took their advice. And thank God I did, because friends of mine who were much stronger in math, much stronger in academics, dropped out, failed out of the pre-engineering at the State University in Farmingdale. Myself, being in the construction technology course, got to learn what I needed to learn, really found out that I could do it with a little bit of hard work, paying attention, things clicked. And as a result, I was able to make City College School of Engineering and then the City College School of Architecture. But I got to tell you, one thing that I learned is that it's important to understand that when things don't work out, maybe it's not such a bad thing. A lesson learned while we were in, while I was in, in college. I was flipping hamburgers at a local restaurant spot. It was, it was sort of like a McDonald's. Mm -hmm. uh, and the owner there, one of the partners, was a great guy. I'll never forget it, John LaBarca. He was taken advantage of by his partners, and I think taken advantage of by his wife, unfortunately, too. He lived for his two young daughters. The one day a week that he had off, I remember him taking his younger daughter to the doctor's for allergy exams to see what kind of allergy she had. And I was complaining 
you know, about not getting into this school or about this or that. And I'll never forget him saying, Frankie, listen to me carefully. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it seems at the time, it's happening for the right reason. And I got to tell you, Molly, over the years, I've seen things go wrong. But every time I can tell you, in the end, it happened for the right reason. And that was a lesson that I learned. And I try to tell my kids that life has a plan. And those things don't seem to be going the way you want. I truly believe it's happening for the right reason. So after going to City College, uh, started out in engineering, it was too technical. It was a research school. I mean, taking atomic physics and being able to do it, surprising myself, I just knew it wasn't for me and transferred to the School of Architecture. And that was terrific. There, you were planning user needs when you design a house. What does the user want? What's important to the user? They also taught you how to manage projects, great management skills. But it was there that I also learned I was not the next Frank Lloyd Wright. I saw students there that were men and women that were so creative. They could sketch. They could design. They were able to come up with such great designs. I, I realized later on that I was actually Salieri. I could recognize great design as he could recognize great music, but he couldn't compose what Mozart composed, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to compose what Frank Lloyd Wright was able to compose or design. But it was a huge asset in my career because I was able to respect great design. And years later, we have a very simple philosophy. An owner will hire a great architect because they want a great building. If we could use our construction management skills to work really hard to cost-effectively build that design without eliminating some of the great parts of the project, giving the owner and architect what they want cost-effectively, it would be a win-win-win. And believe me, it is. When that happens, the owners were happy, the architect's happy, and we're happy because we're building a great building. So it's a simple formula, but it's an exhausting and exhaustive process to do it. But when you do it, it's very gratifying and it leads to other work. So I, I think that that would take me to Barbara. You mentioned Barbara. You've had the advantage of meeting Barbara. You know her radiance. You know the type of woman she is. You know how she's loved and respected by her children and by most everyone she meets. Well, Barbara and I met when we were in high school. She was my older sister's friend. And, you know, it was difficult for her to say that she liked Marlene's younger brother. But she did. And she was a classy lady, a smart lady. And I knew that she was the person for me uh, when I met her. And I kid her because for six months, I'm married to an older woman. Right now, 
Bob is older than me. In May, we'll catch up. And for the next six months, we'll be the same age. <laughs> but it's really been a wonderful journey. And in college, I would decorate houses around Christmas time. And we would do several homes, me and my friend, working in the bitter cold, long into the nights to get these houses done before Christmas. And Barbara would drive up in her old Chevrolet with hot chocolate, and I'd sit in the car and warm up for 15 minutes before I'd go back at it. And, you know, it was really modest beginnings, but precious beginnings as you look back on them. And Barbara wanted me to be an architect. She had visions of my being the next Howard Rock. Uh, but I didn't really want to be that. I knew I couldn't be that. And she actually got me my first job. As she found an ad, they were looking for an architect, but it turned out to be a masonry and bricklaying contracting firm, which suit me just well, especially since Barbara found it. I took the job there and it was a great learning experience. I learned how to build unit prices, to see what it was like to be a subcontractor, to see what it was like to work with the working men. I mean, the mason tenders that supply the mortar for the bricklayers, to me, are the hardest working men in the industry. They work hard to make sure that the bricklayer can produce. The bricks have to be there, the mortar has to be there, the scaffolding has to be made, and they work harder than any trade I've ever seen. But here we are. I start my business six months before we're going to get married. I started in June 1975, six months before we're going to get married. And Barbara was an executive assistant working at One Chase Manhattan Plaza. And she was in the aerospace division. And her bosses, successful executives, were telling her, why are you marrying this bricklayer from Queens? And Molly, to this day, I never resented that. I understood it. I was asking myself that same question. Why was this beautiful, classy, smart lady marrying, well, it wasn't a bricklayer from Queens, but an aspiring contractor from Queens? But we could pull, we could come full circle uh, about 20 years ago, I was chairing the, I was vice chair of the Lower Manhattan Association, which was founded by David Rockefeller. And when Barbara worked at One Chase, David Rockefeller was the CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank. And we would hear stories about lunch on the 60th floor with David Rockefeller and the execs would meet him. And here I am about to present an award to David Rockefeller, who was the founder of the Lower Manhattan Association. And it was be taking place on the 60th floor of One Chase Manhattan Bank. So I'm going to present the award. I walk into the building and I said, this is a Skidmore building. I bet you the telephones are still there. So I go down and I call up Barbara and I say, Barbara, I'm downstairs. So downstairs where? I says, downstairs in the lobby, I need a letter typed. She said, are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? I said, Barbara, I'm in the lobby 
of one Chase Manhattan bank where he used to come down, pick up my notes, type my letters. And what am I doing? This bricklayer from Queens is presenting an award to David Rockefeller on the 60th floor of one Chase Manhattan Plaza. And after I gave the award to Mr. Rockefeller, I told him, I said, I, I have to make a confession. You subsidized my business. My wife was a secretary for you and she was doing work for me. Well, I'll tell you, Molly, he got a real kick out of that story. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I find it to be a, a, real, a real story where you never believe how things could come around full circle. Right. Um, I just have to interject here. This is like, I'm just smiling so, so big that, you know, kind of you've arrived, you know? And so (laughs) I have to ask, you know, did you, you know, um, was it hard? It was, was any of this hard? It just feels like you just were like, here I am. I'm just going to work my butt off and no one, no one's going to tell me otherwise. You seem innately valuing each and every person, Frank. You know, like you're never ahead of your skis. And so just help us. Is that just something that was inside of you forever? I mean, were you ever, you know, uh, arrogant? You know, like I, I know that I can't even imagine that. But it just, <laughs> like, you know, you're just wired to just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, oh, uh, I, I don't know. Thank you. But, you know. It's all about people, you know, and and I think that I've been so fortunate because in the building business, we work with architects who are incredibly creative. I love architects. We've worked with successful clients who are extremely interesting, really smart. And then we work with the boots on the ground, the men in the field who have such enormous common sense. It's sort of a recipe for such a wonderful, wonderful life. And, you know, you think about things that, that were important. Um, I should tell you that of my, all my cousins, my cousin Jackie and I were the same age. We were extremely close. And when I was getting serious with Barbara, my three aunts, they were rocks, rock solid. The three aunts and my mother, these sisters were inseparable. But I found out many years later that they called my cousin Jackie and for a special meeting. And they told him, they said, Jackie, you have to talk to Ricky. Ricky's my nickname, Molly. That's another story. He said, you have to talk to Ricky. Barbara is not Italian. She's Irish and Scottish. She seems to be a little snooty. She's not the right person for Ricky. And thank God, Molly, Jackie said, under, under what must have been enormous pressure, you're wrong. I think Barbara is the absolute right person for Ricky. Imagine if Jackie had caved and tried to get me to cave and life without Barbara, unthinkable. But it's people that have conviction and are willing to stand up and say the things that, 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 that should be said without reservation. Um, I I don't think I could afford to be arrogant. My business is so risky that you can't really sit back on your laurels. You're always betting the farm. 
One job gets bigger than the next. You make this and you're risking twice that. You keep working. Uh, you could come across some difficult projects, difficult clients. Uh, you could be really worried about getting paid, worrying about deadlines, worrying about your reputation. The business is very humbling. So maybe if I have a little humility, it's the uh, outgrowth of being in a business that forces someone to remain humble and uh, doesn't allow any time for arrogance. So I'll give credit to the industry rather than, than to myself. Right. Of course, you're going to model the humility. You're killing me. <laughs> so, Frank, this is very fascinating because you were kind of a worrier. I appreciate you bringing that up. And this Beth the Farm, because you, you, know, you don't seem that that's in your nature. So talk to listeners about like what was that like? Like when you're like, uh, Barbara, we're going to put it on a limb here and it may work or we won't or we'll be homeless. You know, ha, ha, talk to us about that. Well, you know, I think initially when I started out in business, it was like uh, Disney World, Disneyland, you know, increased sales, increased profitability. Uh, one did begin to think that you were infallible. I will tell you, Ma Molly, there was a short period of time where that was the case. We moved from a smaller house into a larger house with a nice, long 500-foot driveway, and things were looking great. And then three projects, three of our largest projects all went wrong at the same time. And I remember just not being able to sleep. I mean, I was in bed, sleeping, waking up, sleeping. And that's when Barbara finally said, this is crazy. We don't need this house. Let's move to Vermont. And I got to tell you, Molly, that was so comforting. Knowing that the bottom wasn't so bad, I was able to pull up my bootstraps, fight each battle, win, and learn a lesson. Learn how to protect yourself. Learn that things aren't always going to go the way you expect they will. And putting aside a little bit of money to be ready to fight when that adversity may step up. So, you know, it really wasn't all easy. I'll tell you that. And it's funny because you met my daughter, Alexandra, mm -hmm. and she sent to me a quote from Ian Schrager, who was a client. She sent it to me just two weeks ago. And I think it's worth reading for your listeners. Ian Schrager said, what they don't see, what they don't see, long hours, Risking your last dollars, the times you're told no, sleepless nights, bad investment, bad partnerships, being taken advantage of, being used, dealing with doubt, family pressure. That's what they don't see. What they do see, success. That's Ian Schrager's quote. And coming from my daughter, who I guess had a front row seat through all of this adversity, through all these ups and downs, I appreciate that. And I think that my children, having seen that, having seen the pressure, having seen the good, seen the bad, are grounded. They understand the value of a dollar. And that, to me, is so important. I'm so grateful for that. And, and I think that, that having them seen this um, has been, been helpful to them in the end. You know, Barbara, being the woman she is, 
always wanted to protect them. And finally, I said, Barbara, you can't keep the outside world out. If you did, it would be a mistake. We have to allow for controlled diversity. Let the children trip and fall. Let's not let them fall off the cliff, but mm -hmm. let them understand that they will be faced with some adversity and let them be prepared for that adversity. And to some extent, I hope a large extent, it seems to have worked, which after all is what every, at least what I, what I do this for, right? You do it for yourself and then you do it for your children. Now you do it for your grandchildren and um, family is what it's all about, uh, at least from my perspective and from Barbara's perspective. Frank, you just seem purpose-built to have been a dad and a grandfather. And I, I am wondering what that experience of being a parent has been for you. Was it hard? You know, you're running a business, you're going full bore. And, you know, were you really doing it all? Were you balancing? Was Barbara covering it, covering it all? I, you know, I just, I know it seems like it was all pretty great. Um but I have to imagine a lot of stress, you know, being a business owner. And then you got, you don't have two or three, you have four kids. Yeah, no, look, Barbara was a huge help. She, she gave up her job, gave up a career to be a mother, which I think is the most important job on the planet. Uh, she did that. She did it lovingly. She did it wholeheartedly. Um, I had to manage things, Molly. You know, I would leave the office at, I would leave the house at four o'clock in the morning. And you'd be amazed at that time. This is 35, 45 years ago. And there were a lot of black limousines on the road, probably because they were doing overseas work and they had to be talking to, to China when there was no such thing as faxes and everything else. And they had to be on the phones. But I would get into the office at five o'clock in the morning and I would do my best work from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. And a lot of my people would say, you know, this is crazy. You're crazy. And I said, no, I'm not crazy. I said, you guys work from five to eight at night. I said, look, there's no way I'm taking my children to school in the morning. That's not in the cards if you're in the construction business. Things start early. But my kids don't miss me from five to eight in the morning. And I could try to get home by five, six o'clock at night and spend some times with the family. So I think that was one way of managing my time to spend some time with the family. But I must tell you that even trying to do that, there was entertaining clients, there were commitments, there were job meetings late at night. And one time Fiona, my youngest, she must've been four years old. And when she picked up the phone, she said to me, daddy, are you coming over for dinner tonight? Well, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Am I coming over for dinner tonight? At that point on, I tried to not have back-to-back -back meetings. <laughs> I tried to make sure that I was home at least every other night. So I think there was just a bit of balancing, a bit of management. But remember, as construction managers, you manage your time. You have to, you know, plan to, you know, if you don't prepare, right, you fail. So you have to be able to manage things in a certain way. My kids would get me get crazy on vacations because they'd all say, we want to do this, and then we want to have lunch here, and then we want to go see this, and we want to see that. And I would put a list together. 
And they'd say, why do you have that list? I said, you're not going to do everything you want to do. If you want it, you got to schedule it. Well, I gave up scheduling and they didn't do everything they wanted to do. <laughs> but you had to be a balance. And I think it starts, though, with managing your time and managing your priorities. I tried to do that, I hope, somewhat successfully. Yeah, I think that there is an answer for that. And it is, yes, you have. So that's bravo. Uh, Frank, talk about as you're leading, you know, as a leader, right? Because you lead um, and you've really grown. You're leading your firm. You're leading clients. Just talk to us about your own leadership journey. You know, how, what do you think uh, have been keys to your success uh, in, in being really a, a phenomenal leader? Uh, I, think, I think that you have to lead by example. Uh, I didn't set out to do that, but I think my parents led by example. You know, kids are smart. They know when parents are genuine. They know when what they're doing, what they're doing is genuine. And I think leaders are the same thing. You're always on stage. Everything you do is being looked at by the people that work for you. And they know whether you're being genuine or not. And I think that if you're genuinely interested in servicing your clients, if you're genuinely interested in growing your building, if you're genuinely interested in your people, I always say that our people are our greatest assets. Without the people I've had over the years, without the people I have today, there would be no successful business. And that's something that I learned early on. Your people are your most important assets. And I try to include them as, as leadership, try to listen to them, include them in leadership, and also understand or let them understand that it takes hard work. You know, if you're going to do what we need to do, you have to be committed. And we find good people, Molly. And the good thing about good people is they know good people. Remember that old quote, show me your acquaintances and I'll tell you who you are? Well, we hire some really talented people and they hang out with really talented people who they recommend to us. So it comes with people, people that are dedicated, people that are willing to work. I'll never forget about four or five years ago, I was talking at our retreat. We have an annual retreat every year where we invite everyone from assistants, secretaries, upper management, the CEO, my president, Joe Mizzi, who's been a tremendous help in growing the business in, in later years. And we talked to the group. And one thing I said was that the difference between a job and a career is about an additional 35 hours a week. Well, after that evening session, I was getting a lot of pushback. And there was, you know, these new people, you really shook them up. And, and they were wondering, what, what, what is this 35 additional hours a week? Well, I thought about it, but I didn't back down. I said, look, if you love what you do, you like me when I was younger, you like my, the younger people in this office who are now senior people, loved what they were doing. They were like sponges. They took everything in. They loved working long hours and they became great at it. That's how you become good. Pete Sampras became good at tennis because he hit the ball 18 hours a day off the wall. It didn't just happen. So I think that you need to lead by example, but you have to have people that are committed to the cause. Uh, and, and we have been blessed 
to have people that are really committed to doing the right thing, uh, to following our core values and our mission statement, which we have, which I read at the retreat personally every year to make sure that we are announcing what we believe in and what we intend to do. Um, anyway, I don't know if that's of any help or if it answers your question, but, but those are some of my thoughts on, on that. No, it's perfect. I am not surprised at all, of course. Um, you know, Frank, I, I wonder, you, you mentioned that you didn't know you were poor, right? You had no idea that it was as tough for your parents. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how your relationship with money is, you know, and, and in, was it something you want, you know, I guess, what it is, what is it for you? Well, you know, grow, look, we, we, we wanted for nothing, but I did see growing up that my two uncles that were in business had a new car every two years. They were able to take nice vacations. I did want to make money. Uh, I wanted to improve my life for my family. And I set out to do that. Um, and one of the great byproducts of that was to be able to give my parents as much as I could give them while they were alive. And they, they appreciated that so much. They worked so hard. And in the end, I was able to help them. And that, that's something that I'm so lucky to be able to do. Because, you know, if you have a very successful parent, what can you give them that they would appreciate? Um, but I was fortunate in that I was able to, to, to give back what they gave me. My mom lent me $5,000 to start this business, uh, probably her life savings. And I was able to pay it back with, with some handsome interest, let's say. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but the thing about money is that it's not the be-all, end-all. And I've been able to work with very wealthy people. And maybe it's a rationalization, but I don't envy them. I admire them. I like what they've accomplished. Uh, it's incredible. They're great people. But I don't feel that I'm unsuccessful because I have less. And my children... I think they have enough to still value. Uh, they have enough. Uh, I guess they have little enough to still value a dollar. And it was really important to me that my children did their own thing. You know, it has been said that you can't grow grass in the shadow of a tall oak tree. Well, Molly, I'll be a little not humble. Uh, in my business, I'm the tall oak tree. So I suggested that my children go into business on their own. And my son, Andrew, opened up Siami Homes, Palm Beach. And my youngest son, FJ, and son-in-law, Mike, you met them all, are Siami Homes, New York. And they're doing it on their own. And they're, I think, being what I pray for every day. Please, God, let my children have happy, healthy, and, quote, productive lives. Productive lives where they feel good about what they're doing. And I got to tell you, Molly, these businesses are taking off. I think they're going to buy and sell their dad in time, which would be <laughs> one of the great <laughs> things <laughs> that I'd like to witness. And then Alexandra, my, my daughter, who you've met, is the talented artist in the family, the singer. You met her. She married a rock star. 
and she wants to produce a show. And that is so much fun working with her and her husband to get that off the ground. Uh, all of these things keep me going. It ain't boring. And uh, I never want to be bored. One thing I can't deal with is boredom. No, I, it's never going to happen. Uh, Frank, I can imagine some of the, you know, when you're working with people who um, have a lot of resources, don't often have to listen to anyone else. I'm I'm just wondering how you manage some of those clients. You know, this might be a good say it's skillfully scenario, but, you know, you're, because your ego is so in check, I, I can imagine you're very successful in somehow uh, working with others who's our outsized. And I bet listeners would learn a lot in how you navigated some of those. Well, again, as I said, I, I admire uh, these people who have been enormously successful, you know, private jets, numerous homes. Uh, and and I learned from them. Uh, but, and I, I, and, I, and I understand that they're demanding. I understand that they could have anything they could choose any builder in the world. They are entrusting us with an enormous responsibility to do what they are asking us to do. And many times it's personal. Uh, when you do a residence, we do do residences. I kid around with, uh, with FJ. We're doing a, a $95 million residence for a very famous person. Uh, not someone that you know, Molly, I don't think. But anyway... My youngest son, FJ, came into my office and said, did you see the sign in our office? I said, what are you talking about? He said, Siami Homes, why are you doing that $95 million residence? I said, because we do Siami big homes. <laughs> They'll get there, but right now we do the big homes. And these folks could pick anyone. And, and it's an enormous responsibility to try and work with them. And it's very personal when you do a residence. It's also personal when you're doing a major corporate project, if you're doing a flagship store, it's important to the CEO of that company and it filters down to the other people. So we've been involved with a lot of high profile projects and I've come to really respect these folks and understand that they are demanding uh, and they should be demanding. They could have whatever they want and, and we try to give it to them. Now, if it, if the scale is tipped and they become disrespectful, um, I'll have none of it, especially, you know, at this stage in, in my life. I mean, I think that respect and consideration of, of everyone, uh, including the working man, the boots on the ground, is important. Uh, so it's, 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 it's been a good experience. But again, um, everything's relative, Molly. Happiness is relative. And I do go to church. I'm not a religious fanatic, but I will try to go to church on Sundays. And not long ago, there was a gospel, which I found very resonating. It basically said, he who has much does not have more. And he who has little does not have less. Having experienced both, I got to tell you, that is a very powerful statement. And it's so fortunate for everyone because happiness is relative and people find happiness in the little things and in the larger things. But that doesn't mean you're happier. And I think that that's a, a very important aspect 
of of life. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Um, you know, one thing I've always been curious with is when you were brought in for the memorial, and um, to, just if you might share a little bit about that experience and what you were brought in to do, and and perhaps how you felt about it. I imagine it's quite emotional. Yeah, well, you know, I had gotten a call, it was 2006, uh, from then Mayor Bloomberg and, and Governor Pataki, and the m- memorial budget had gone from $500 million to $970 million. And they asked me if I could somehow align the budget with the design. And if the mayor and governor call, you know, how could you say no? Well, Molly, I'll tell you something. If the president calls next time, before I say yes, I will assess the minefields. <laughs> uh, uh, the timing was perfect. I had just made Joe Mizzy president of the company. It was May of 2006, and he bought me a map and a notebook, and he said, you were going on a sabbatical. You were going to go away for three months and prove that I could run the business without you. And I said, oh, boy, after 30 years not having a summer off, this will be fun. But the sabbatical became the memorial, which to me was the assignment of a lifetime. Uh, And I did have the guts to tell Mayor Bloomberg and Governor Pataki that if they gave me the responsibility, they had to give me the authority. And that whatever I found to be the right thing, they'd have to give me the, the authority to announce. Uh, surprisingly, they did that. But I knew it was larger than me, and I immediately put together a group of advisors, great advisors, Pritzker Prize-winning architects, uh, b- uh, business people, uh, political folks, Robert, Bob Douglas, who was the head of the Lower Manhattan Alliance. Um, and together with the advisors, and especially the family members, I met with all of the family members, not all of them, but most of the leaders of the, not all the family members, the leaders of the families, and understood what was important to them and tried to really go back to architectural school and assess the user needs. What were the needs of this memorial? And in the end, with a bit of divine intervention, I have to say, we somehow came up with a solution that met the budget and that was accepted by 85% of the population because they had to do a polling before they adopted the design. And um, I think at the end of the day, it was, it was a good design. It didn't compromise the issues that were at the crux of the design. And I was able to talk to Maya Lind, who was the head of the jury that selected the plan and get her opinion because this C student in design wasn't gonna change the design that had one of the 5,000 entries. Uh, but in the end, I think with the help of a lot of people, uh, we came up with something that, that I think is great and something that, that, that I find enormous uh, pride in, in, in seeing when I go there. Um, again, it was the assignment of a lifetime. It also taught me that I never wanted to be in politics. I could not take the press following me around day and night looking for leaks, looking for what I was doing. It taught me that politics was not in my DNA. I love it. Ugh. I'm so smiley. Okay, we could go on forever. Let's bring a wrap here. Frank, three words or phrases that best describe you. 
Oh boy. <laughs> um, three words: three father, words. father, husband, and oh, uh, family, family guy. Because I have a big family. <laughs> you have a very big family. And, you know, the you're doing a lot now, and, and you don't need to do it, but I can tell you just want to do it forever. What is what is the most fulfilling aspect of what you do? Um, the next project. You know, we, 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 we keep going. We're getting more and more exciting projects. Because as you complete a project, if you complete it successfully, other projects come to you. Uh, I think growing the the Siami brand, which is something that my son Andrew, uh, he coined that phrase. You know, he said, Dad, I'm going to be in Palm Beach. I'm going to grow the brand. We're going to start to grow it in Florida. Uh, he's doing just that. And now we're involved with a big development project in uh, Osceola County. It's an entire city. Um, so what keeps me going is the prospects of the future. Watching my grandchildren. Oh, Molly, let's not forget 11 wonderful grandchildren. Watching what great parents my children have become. That keeps me going. And, and looking forward to seeing what these wonderful grandchildren will become. Uh, I think that they they are terrific. The kids are terrific. We are we are truly blessed. Barbara and I are truly blessed and 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 I I am blessed to be able to look forward to every day. Wow, I love it. Frank, one last question because I know this was a stretch for you. What was it like for you to share your journey today? I think it was fun, Molly. You <laughs> said it would be fun. You said make it fun, you know, and in the words of Arthur isn't fun the best thing to have? Uh, I, I, you know, saying it skillfully uh, is a an interesting concept, and I hope I said a few things skillfully. Uh, I applaud what you're doing um, because I listened to some of your interviews uh, before doing this, and and they were very informative, very helpful, and. Um, I wish I could have listened to them 40 years ago when I was starting out in business. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I applaud what you're doing. Yeah, I, it's coming all back at you too. Um, Frank, I just, I love how you exude respect for, for all. The boots on the ground all the way up to those at the very top. Your faith, uh, your ability to find happiness and just this, just exuberance to reach for the stars. You're just such... Uh, such a great role model for us. So uh, we will see you very soon. Um, if in any little tiny way, I might be a little bit helpful. You let me know. I appreciate you being part of the solution and you're helping all of us to be safe. And, 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 and Molly, you know, we're, we're here. The Greek contingent is ready and able to help each other out. Yes, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> there, we'll, we'll see you very soon. Frank, you take good care. You got it. Thank you again. Be well. Oh, amazing. Oh, folks, it does not get any better. What a joy. Let me share my thought for the week from Frank's mom. When there's a will, there's a way. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Frank's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. 
essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in your life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 